Welcome to our Meditation Service podcast. Each week we will have a different presentation, including different sutra chanting, different speakers, and different Dharma messages. Through this Meditation Service program, we will have both seated and standing meditation, sutra chanting, and a Dharma message. We hope that this Meditation Service podcast will enable the listener to experience meditation, to experience sutra chanting, and to listen to a Dharma message. In our Shin Buddhist tradition, we regard meditation as not a practice or as a means to try to attain enlightenment, but we are simply sitting to calm ourselves so that we might better receive the Dharma, hear the Dharma. Our everyday life is so hectic and fast-paced and busy, we need a little bit of quiet time, tranquility. We find it hard to focus on listening to a message, and so by sitting first, we're able to settle ourselves, calm ourselves, and open our hearts and minds to receive the teachings. Once we learn how to receive the teachings in a meditation service, we find that we're able to receive the teachings even in our everyday life. We encounter teachers anywhere. It could be a driver. It could be a bartender. It could be your pet cat or dog that gives you a teaching relevant to your life. Thank you. We will now have seated meditation. Take a moment to see that your back is straight and centered with your shoulders relaxed. If you're in a chair, it's best to sit forward slightly rather than leaning on the chair back and keep your feet flat on the floor. Try keeping your eyes half open, resting the gaze gently downward without focusing on anything in particular. In the same way, be open to whatever sounds are coming into your ears, whether from inside the room or outdoors. We are not trying to isolate ourselves from the world around us, but rather feel that we're part of that world. If you like, you may count your breaths from one to ten. Inhale deeply. Let it all out. Try slowing down your rate of breathing relative to what it would be at other times. We are not trying to think about anything in particular or visualize anything. We simply watch our thoughts come and go.
Please put your hands together in Gasho. Bow. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. Naman Selected Sayings, page 8, The Golden Chain I am a link in Amida's golden chain of love that stretches around the world. I will keep my link bright and strong. May I be kind and gentle to every living thing and protect all who are weaker than myself. May I think pure and beautiful thoughts, say pure and beautiful words, and do pure and beautiful deeds. May every link in Amida's golden chain of love be bright and strong, and may we all attain perfect peace. You may stretch your legs and then please stand. We will now have our standing meditation session. Your upper body is in the same position as for sitting meditation. Straight head and spine, shoulders back, eyes half open, hands comfortably positioned in front. Legs should be shoulder width apart with knees slightly bent. Again, rock forward and backward and side to side. To find your center. Standing meditation reminds us to take our meditation practice out into the world, waiting in line at the store, being stuck in traffic, going through TSA security at the airport. Over time, meditation becomes a practice for the body and mind that can be recalled when needed most, in situations that may be merely annoying, perhaps frustrating, or even stressful. We will begin at the sound of the bell.
Please put your hands together in gasho and bow. Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts. Selected Sayings, page 10, The Three Treasures. How rare and wondrous it is to have been born into human life, and now I live it. How rare and wondrous it is to be able to listen to the Buddha Dharma, and now I am able to hear it. If I do not transcend the world of delusion in this life, when will I ever attain spiritual liberation? May I, along with the entire Sangha, with sincere heart and mind, rely on that which can be truly relied on in life, the three treasures. I rely on the Buddha. May I, along with all sentient beings, awaken to the great path with my entire being and discover the highest aspiration, which is to become a Buddha. I rely on the Dharma. May I, along with all sentient beings, deeply reflect on the meaning of the sutras and gain wisdom that is as deep and vast as the ocean. I rely on the Sangha. May I, along with all sentient beings, become one Sangha of life, able to move forward and live with a dynamic spirit that is hindered by nothing. The unsurpassed, deep, and wondrous Dharma, even in millions of kalpas, is extremely difficult to encounter, but now I am able to experience and embrace it. May I come to understand and revere the true meaning of the Tathagata. This completes our standing meditation. Please return to your seats. We will now have sutra chanting. A sutra is a sacred scripture from Buddhism. These originated long ago in India and in China. The text that we chant is actually Chinese, a translation from Sanskrit originals. Is it necessary to understand the meaning of what we're chanting? Of course, not at the outset. We don't know anything about it when we first begin. But I believe that we should aim to understand what the sutra is teaching us. We should have a basic awareness of its content. These are the teachings of our Shin Buddhist tradition, after all. For that reason, we provide in the Shin Buddhist service book some pages of explanation and some English translations. What we experience by chanting, I would say, has three aspects. The first aspect is meditative, like sitting or standing or breathing. Chanting forces us to focus our attention on the present moment, and it helps to calm our minds. Second, there is a ritual aspect. We are reenacting something that's taken place countless times over the centuries. We are connecting with the many followers of our Buddhist tradition, who have chanted these same words, and we are gaining a sense of oneness with the other people who are chanting at this time, perhaps listening to this podcast. Third, there is a learning aspect. This is to gain a little bit of knowledge of what the meaning of the characters that we chant are, and we do that separately, I would say, from actual chanting. We will now chant Jusege. Gagon cho se gan Hishimujodoh 
Please put your hands together in Gasho and bow. Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts. In the Buddhist tradition, when we hear or retell stories, the main focus is what is the meaning of the story. It's not so much about whether it's literally true or not. That's not really of a concern. It's what is the story trying to convey? What is the emotional truth that's contained within that story? I listened to a movie critic from the Washington Post named Anne Hornaday, and she says American audiences need to get much more sophisticated when they watch movies. We're too concerned about whether something is accurate or if there's any consistency errors in the movie. One example she used was Spotlight the story about the newspaper reporters in Boston breaking the Christian clerical abuse scandal. And there was a scene where the priests, the lawyers, and the newspaper men meet to discuss the next step they're going to take on a golf course. And she said that technically that's not how it happened. This scene was reframed, reshot on the golf course. Actually, this dialogue or this interaction between the parties was going on with email. But she said, you know how boring that would be for an audience to watch a bunch of people typing and reading and sending emails for 20 minutes. And so this is artistic license to bring out the meaning or the power of the story. It's not a documentary. It's not meant to be factual history. It's trying to transmit an emotional truth. And that's the word she uses, emotional truth. So uh, I want to discuss the Buddha's birth story. His birth is honored. Celebrated might not be the right word, but honored or observed April 8th. And the way the story goes is his mother and father, King Suddhodana and Queen Maya, really wanted to have a child. They needed a firstborn uh, male heir. I guess secondborn would have been okay, but they were running out of time. They were having trouble conceiving. They were afraid they would not have an heir to the throne to carry on the family line. They've been trying to have babies in the normal way that human beings do. And one night, Queen Maya was in bed, and she had a dream of a white elephant. Now, to Western Christian audiences, we tend to see this as a divine sign, or a divinity, or a miraculous birth, or immaculate conception. But to an Indian audience, this is a establishing shot. White elephants, when they appear in a story, kind of portell good fortune. When I watch a scary movie, and there's thunder and lightning, I know something bad's going to happen. And I know when one of the characters gets up to go outside to check if they locked their car or not or turned out their lights and they don't come back, and then the next person says, I think I'm going to go out and look for Mary too just to make sure she's okay. I mean, I know that's bad. (laughs) I know Mary's never coming back. Every time somebody leaves to go check on a missing person in a horror movie, they're not coming back. 
And a lot of times in horror films, the people that get killed are usually the ones that are not moral or ethical. And so a lot of the horror stories in American culture are morality plays, where the uh, people that are unkind to others are the ones that usually get it in the films. And so this is the same case here. The white elephant signals to an ancient Indian audience 2,500 years ago that something good is going to happen, like a rainbow in a Western film. So she wakes up, and she realizes she's conceived a child. She's pregnant in the normal way. She waits through nine months of pregnancy. And then as custom in India as it is today, the expecting mother travels home to the maternal parent's house to give birth. So this is what she does. She leaves the castle with her bridesmaids and wet nurses and midwives and some guards and horses and a chariot. And she heads towards her parents' home to have her child. But on the way, she starts to not feel well. We know that it's labor pains, but she doesn't quite know yet because she's never had a child before. And they come across an oasis. It's called Lumbini Garden. There's trees and water, and they pull over. You know, it's like a 7-Eleven on a freeway. They pull over in the shade, and she begins to feel the baby coming. And in the story, the tree lowers a branch so that she can grab it with her right arm to help her balance standing. And so in Buddhist Indian stories, reality uh, usually responds in some way to great events. And this also signals to the audience that even nature realizes the profundity and the meaning of this birth and bends down an arm of a tree to help her stand. And there's many different postures for delivering babies. I think in America, we mainly do it lying down, but there's birthing chairs. And India at this time, standing up, giving birth was quite common. You could think of it as letting gravity be your friend. Gravity helps. So she stands, and she gives birth to the Buddha. And it's said that the Buddha is born out of the right side of her body, of her ribs. And to a Western audience, this seems kind of odd. But to an Indian person, it signifies caste. So at the time, there was the Brahmin religious class, the warrior class, the merchants, the laborers, and the untouchables. So if you were born in a story out of the forehead of the mother, you knew you were a Brahmin, religious, spiritual class. If you were born from the chest, the ribs, you were a warrior. From the waist, you were a merchant. From the tops of the feet, you were a laborer. And if you were born from the bottom of the feet, you were signaling to the audience that this is an outcast. And so we have a warrior prince being born from the ribs of the mother. And then Prince Siddhartha stands immediately which little babies never do, and take seven steps. And numbers in Buddhist stories always have meaning. And so the reason why it's seven is there are six realms of consciousness in Buddhist cosmology or psychology. There's greed and envy and anger and serenity. There's these six different realms, three or maybe you would consider negative and three positive. But the goal of Buddhism isn't to get into one of the better realms. It's to quit cycling through these realms over and over again. I mean, we're constantly migrating and moving from emotion to emotion to emotion. And this generates suffering. We're never on an even keel. So the Buddha takes seven steps. Prince Siddhartha takes seven steps to signify he's transcended the six realms by going one step beyond conventional ways of experiencing life. And then he speaks, of course, which babies don't do. He points to the heavens and he points down to the earth. And he says, above the heavens and below, 
I am most noble. And this sounds a little cocky, but the I he's talking about is the true self, not the ego self, but the true self, the absolute self, the enlightened self is most noble. And this is what we strive for. And nobility in Buddhism is not something you're born with. It's something you experience or exude through practice on the way. I explained this to some high school kids, and one of the high school kids raised his hand, and he said, Sensei, this is called foreshadowing. And I'm a math major, a computer scientist, and I said, what's that? And they said, the story of the Buddha's birth is foreshadowing his life. This is an enlightenment story retold in the context of his birth. So the Buddha, you could in a sense, he's physically being born, but you could argue he's being spiritually reborn. He's leaving his mother's womb, and he's coming into a new world. He transcends the six realms. He realizes the true self, and he becomes awakened. So the birth story is really a foreshadowing of his life story to the audience. And then the other thing I wanted to mention, too, the dangers of being literal, is Western missionaries from Great Britain and England came into India in the 1800s, and when they heard that the baby was born from the ribs, and also Queen Maya sadly dies seven days after Prince Siddhartha is born due to complications in childbirth, Western Christian scholars read this story literally and said, oh, we know why Queen Maya died. It's because the Buddha was born you know, he could walk, he could talk, and he was born right out the side of his mother's body. He must have had a full set of teeth, and that the Buddha literally ate his way out of his mother's body rather than being born normally through the birth canal. I thought this was the most horrible interpretation I'd ever heard, and I thought maybe it was anti-Buddhist and purposely kind of defamatory. But then I realized if you were a literal Western person and you read the Bible literally as a fundamentalist, and you take the Bible as history, then maybe this is the only interpretation available to them. This is the only way they understood to interpret stories is in a literal way. And if the mother died and he really ate his way out, she must have had a gaping hole in her body and obviously bled to death seven days later. But you can see how you completely misconstrue the point of the story by ignoring the symbolism and the meaning and going straight to literal fact and history. So whenever you hear Dharma talks, or whenever you practice Buddhism, I hope you always think to yourself, what is this story trying to tell me? Why would this story be told? What's the point of the story? What effect is it supposed to have on me? And I think if you do that, you'll be able to contextualize Buddhism very successfully if you don't try to force it into a literal interpretation. Thank you very much. Please join me in Gosho. Namandouts, 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 namandouts. This concludes this podcast. I hope you feel grounded. I hope you feel different than when you began. And this feeling you have, I hope you take it with you out into your everyday life. It's important to develop these qualities in a controlled environment like this podcast. But the aim is for the effects to begin to bleed out into your everyday life naturally. My wife once sent me a meme on Facebook that said, yoga works, but only if you show up. And I feel that way about Buddhism and about meditation. It surely works, but only if you stick with it. And you have to get to the point where it becomes something natural and effortless in your life. And if you have high expectations 
and you're trying to rush the process, you actually retard your ability to change over time. You don't want to grasp it. You don't want to hang on to it. You just want to experience it in a regular practice and integrate it into your everyday life. So thank you very much for coming. I will close with Gasho. Hands together and we will bow. Today's program was presented by Reverend Marvin Harada, Reverend John Turner, Reverend Ellen Crane, Minister's Assistant James Pollard, Executive Producers Reverend Marvin Harada and Jim Scott, produced by the Buddhist Education Center of Orange County Buddhist Church, Anaheim, California, USA. Directed and engineered by Reverend John Turner. Edited by Jim Scott. This program includes excerpts from Time Stood Still by Riley Lee, used with permission. Copyright 2019, Orange County Buddhist Church, Anaheim, California, USA, all rights reserved. We hope you'll join us for future podcasts. Or please check out our Buddhist online program at everydaybuddhist.org. Our website is ocbuddhist.org. There are Dharma messages that you can read on the website, and the online program has a number of Buddhist education courses from introductory level to the study of Buddhist texts. If you've never attended one of our meditation services, We are located at 909 Southdale Avenue in Anaheim. Thank you for joining us today.